Hello, and welcome to the Tech Turt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Today, we're posting a panel that actually just happened yesterday uh, at the fantastic Night Informed conference that I thought uh, subscribers to the Tech Turt Podcast might find interesting. This was the final panel of the conference, and it was entitled Protocols, Not Platforms, The Promise and Peril of Federated Social Media Networks. The panel was moderated by Yoel Roth, the former head of trust and safety at Twitter, uh, who has recently been studying and writing about decentralized trust and safety. And then the panelists were myself, uh, talking obviously about my Protocols Not Platforms paper and a bunch of other related stuff, along with Jay Graber, the CEO of Blue Sky. As you'll hear, we talk uh, about a lot of things related to how to think about trust and safety and content moderation issues in a more decentralized world, which creates both new challenges and also new opportunities. It was a really fun discussion for me, at least, and I'd like to thank the Knight Foundation, as well as both Yoel and Jay, for allowing me to share it here. So please enjoy. The world is increasingly technological. Good morning, Miami. Are we all well rested? No. Good. I'm not the only one. Uh, as we consider the playground where we would like to spend our time, whether it be the kind with the rubber mats on the floor or the kind that gives you tetanus, perhaps it's time to consider how federated social media networks might change the way that we think about the logic and structure and rules of social media. Put simply, can I live and play in the Fediverse without having my hand slapped for not using CWs enough? To tackle these questions, we have a conversation between the CEO of Blue Sky, Jay Graber, the editor of Tech Dirt, Mike Masnick, on a panel moderated by fellow Annenberg Penn alum, who's now at Penn, Berkeley, and Carnegie. But I think we all think of him as the guy who really hung in there and gave it a good old college try as long as he could. And for that, we are eternally grateful, Yoel Roth. Thanks, Dana. A little over a year ago, many of us were in this room. I was on the stage with Kara Swisher talking about uh, the implosion of my former employer and trying to predict where we would go from there. And in the intervening year, a, a lot has happened, to put it mildly. We've seen, certainly, Twitter make some changes, uh, perhaps some for the better, mostly for the worse. We've seen uh, new regulations like the Digital Services Act in Europe come into force. And I think most exciting of all, we've seen a Cambrian explosion of platforms vying to replace what Twitter used to be. And to return to a, to a question that came up on the first day of the conference, what are you optimistic about? Despite having a, a somewhat dour and gloomy disposition most of the time, I will lead with what I am optimistic about. 
And what I'm optimistic about is that seemingly for the first time in a while, we are in a moment where the stakes for the social web seem like they're under construction again. It seems like there is a universe of possibility and potential for what the internet could look like for the next 15 or 20 years. And to help us explore what that looks like, what it's been like, and really what it's like to build that, I have two of the people who have been on the front lines of this work, Jay Graber, the CEO of Blue Sky, Mike Masnick, the editor of the influential and perhaps infamous uh, tech commentary site, TechDirt. Mike, I want to start with you. A couple years ago, you wrote the paper that gave this panel its name, a call for protocols, not platforms. And so a lot of the, the conversation we've been having since Elon bought Twitter for $44 billion has, has been about you know, what comes next in terms of platforms. But for longer than that, you've been saying that that's kind of not the right conversation to have at all. It's, it's not about one platform or another. It's about needing to build a different type of social web. And so, you know, for, for those of us who perhaps have not read your article, and, and by the way, I highly recommend you do read Mike's article, unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, the history of that article goes back even, you know, even longer, sort of a decade ago, when, when everyone was sort of really first thinking about, like, how do we handle really complex situations in terms of, of content moderation, but also a whole bunch of other questions around, you know, privacy and competition and sort of trying to figure out, um, you know, how does this all work together? And there was a lot of reasonable concern. I think, you know, I'm sure, especially with a lot of people in this, in this room, you know, earlier than, than maybe there was, there was the more general widespread concern. And just, you know, thinking about, you know, effectively what, what led to that paper was kind of thinking about where we went wrong and, and thinking back to kind of like what were the early days of the internet where things, where there was a reason to be optimistic and there were interesting things that were happening and, and sort of what had changed in between. And the thing that, you know, that I was thinking about certainly initially was that in the early days, everything really was built on protocols. You think about email and Usenet and, and the web itself was, was just this protocol that then anyone could build on. And that's where the optimism and excitement came from was the fact that it wasn't, you know, you had these walled gardens and silos or whatever you want to call them with like AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy. But like the exciting stuff was all happening out on the open web where people could build all sorts of stuff. And, you know, you sort of realize in the, the early 2010s that we had gone back the other way to, to these walled gardens, and so many of the complaints that we were seeing really sort of tied back to the fact that, you know, those are very limiting in all sorts of ways. And the optimism and the excitement and the, the ability to sort of just go out there and create is much more limited when you're in those walled gardens. And so the, the sort of thought experiment behind the paper was what happens if we were to move back to this world. And I will say, I didn't expect it to play out exactly this way, um, but you know, the original point of that paper was, was sort of twofold, but, but certainly it was an attempt to convince the companies themselves that a lot of the pressure that they were starting to face around 2016, 2017 could be alleviated somewhat uh, if, they were, if they were themselves to adopt it, right? And so, that sort of led to Blue Sky accidentally because the one person that actually read it and was convinced by it was, was Jack Dorsey, um, who decided that he was going to fund it with the idea being that, that Twitter itself would, would adopt uh, Blue Sky. But everybody else told me that it was crazy, and including, 
I had conversations with people at Meta who were like, this is never going to happen. This is the dumbest idea. Like, why did you even bother writing anything like this? Um, which is interesting now in retrospect. We should uh, all take our writing cues from Meta staffers. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but you know, the idea was like, can we get back to this world w which, where there is actual competition, where there is like this, the uh, ability to innovate like the open web originally gave us, where everything is not decided by like, you know, five guys who live within a 25 mile, 25 mile radius in, around San Francisco. Um, and it was just sort of this hopeful piece that now we're starting to see some of it come to life, thanks in large part to Jay. So Jay, we will, we will get to how you read Mike's paper and then you know, built it in, in just a minute. But before we do, Mike, like, the paper is, is academically rich and insightful and intriguing and provocative, but like, imagine that I'm just you know, a normie and I'm like fine with Instagram and TikTok and whatever. Like, they're not great, but they're okay. What's the consumer pitch here? Like, why should I care? Yeah, and I mean, there's a few different ways to answer that. And the, the simplest answer is like, you shouldn't, right? The, the consumer pitch is they just want the best service overall, right? So the, the sort of indirect pitch is that with this, we should get much better services, much better services that respect the consumers, that provide better, more user-focused services. I don't know if Corey's still here, but like less initiative services um, for a variety of reasons because of the, the fundamental nature of a protocol-based system as opposed to, to a walled garden where you know, the initiatification curve is sort of guaranteed. Um, and I think that the, the protocol type system prevents that. But like, I don't think that anyone who isn't like really invested in this is thinking about that. So I think like the and and I talk about this a little bit in the paper that the protocol-based services have to be better than the the walled garden services themselves. That they have to build up something that people actually want to use for the sake of like the actual services on the platform. I don't think most users care about whether or not it's decentralized. But I think that. It, it does work to their benefit in terms of you know, better innovation, better services, better control of their own experience, better privacy setup. There are a whole bunch of reasons, but those are not the things that get people to actually use it. I think just having the competition from these different services and the, the different providers building competing services perhaps on the same protocol leads to just a better overall experience for the users in, in the long run. But I don't think there's like, there's. You know, and, and like the Mastodon people will argue otherwise that like there is this pitch that like, oh, you should like really care about this stuff. I don't think that's true. I don't think that the average user cares about that stuff. They do care about whether or not the service is better and whether or not, you know, if there are risks involved, what, what the risks are. And I think that the protocol-based services eventually, it takes time, but lead to a better overall consumer experience in the end. And so that's where we need to get next. Jay, you've spoken a lot about sort of pushing back on this inshitification of the social web and have really consistently emphasized that decentralization and building the at protocol is at the heart of your vision for how to do that with Blue Sky. Um, I love this quote. Uh, at one point, Blue Sky banned somebody, uh, so they do content moderation, spoiler, uh, and, and your community was really happy about this. They were celebrating, they were like, yes, Jay made the right decision, we have uh, you know, a virtuous leader. And instead of basking in the adoration of your fans like any normal person, you posted, and I quote, even if I were the nicest, wisest, benevolent dictator to ever grace the face of the earth, 
and I can make no guarantees about that. The companies that run social platforms outlast individual leadership. This public square would inevitably be ruined like any other. You were saying, in essence, that you view yourself as a potential future threat to Blue Sky, which is a kind of surprising thing to hear the CEO of a tech company say. Unpack that vision a little bit for us. Yeah, so here's the thing. A, a captain can always sink the ship, and the captain can also steer that ship in good directions, but they can also sink it. And so this was one of the key reasons that I think decentralization is important. It provides resilience um, to protect against downside risk, and it also gives you, you know, permissionless innovation so people can build and make things better. Um, and so what I was seeing at the time is, you know, social is, has a lot of centralized risk here because there's just a few people in charge who make decisions for how these platforms work, how speech is moderated, um, and it affects billions of people. And so this is why I was really, you know, invested in decentralized protocols around the time. And, and here's a bit of a history of, like, how Blue Sky happened from my perspective. So in 2019, I was actually working on a social app. I'd been building and researching decentralized protocols. And then uh, Jack tweeted at the end of 2019, uh, we're gonna fund an open protocol for social that Twitter will eventually run on. And I found this to be so compelling that I said goodbye to the co-founder that I was about to um, start working on this social app with that I'd been building. And I just dedicated myself to it um, to try to push this forward. And so at the time, it was just a really small you know, chat room of people that Twitter were you know, talking to external experts, including you know, Mike and some other people. And then uh, the pandemic happened in 2020. And nothing happened for a while. People didn't know if this project was ever going to go anywhere. And then by mid-2021, Twitter started you know, interviewing people for Blue Sky Lead. Um, and you know, they talked to a lot of people. Uh, we all wrote proposals. And people like you know, Mike helped you know, judge them. And then uh, mid-2021, they chose me as Blue Sky Lead. And then, because I was aware at the time that you know, Jack was the biggest proponent of this decentralized protocol idea, um, I thought you know, they, they made this commitment over five years to support this project within Twitter. But five years is a long time in the history of social. And um, if Jack, as the captain of Twitter, like, goes away or something happens, then the institutional support for Blue Sky might go away. So what I did at the time was um, make sure that we set up as an independent organization outside of Twitter to have this sort of protection against the downside risk of Twitter being centralized. And that turned out to be the whole reason that we're still here today. <laughs> turns out not a, not a bad idea to uh, resist hitching your wagon to Twitter and Jack Dorsey. <laughs> so we're still around. And um, it was honestly just this, people asked if I had seen the future because basically right after we got set up at the end of 2022, things changed very rapidly. Jack left, you know, Elon made the bid to buy Twitter, and then everything was kind of thrown up in the air. But I didn't know about any of this until everyone else heard about it. Like, I heard, just read the news like everyone else. Um, but what I was aware of was just this centralized risk factor. And so what we're trying to build with the at protocol and this underlying substrate is something that gives users resilience to this kind of risk factor. And Users still want like good UX. There still needs to be moderation. There need to be these things, and so there need to be service providers. And that's what the Blue Sky app is, built on top of the app protocol. But we try to provide sensible defaults and then give users the right to leave. And this right to leave, this ability to port your account and your data and your relationships, is really what gives you this property of resilience. So that you know, if we you know change drastically overnight as a company or things like this happen, the goal is to get this whole protocol ecosystem 
to a point where users can just seamlessly shift over and then be on another app or another service because there's multiple. There's you know, like a, many people, many entities that are all contributing to this ecosystem and it doesn't necessarily you know, all change overnight. You get this property of resilience and you get this property of innovation where anyone can build a different client if they don't like the choices we've made in Blue Sky. Um, and so basically what we've done with Blue Sky the app is really do um, product-driven protocol development. And so that really, once you have users, it puts you up against a lot of the realities of how the protocols are going to work, how things are going to play out. Um, and it's essentially given us a way to show users what's possible in this ecosystem. And so rather than just telling people, oh, like decentralization has all these benefits in the abstract and trying to convince people, you can sit here all day and talk about algorithmic choice and these ideas like you know, moderation middleware, but it's a lot more powerful to just say, here, there's 25,000 custom feeds that third-party developers have built and you can just choose from them. And that show, not tell, is a lot of what we're doing in the Blue Sky app. I love that. So, so again, like play out the consumer experience a little bit for us. Imagine one day I wake up and I'm like, oh, Jay Graber, I'm getting some bad vibes here and I want to leave, like this right of exit you've talked about. What does the consumer experience of that look like? Yeah, so this is part of the protocol piece of account portability we've really designed around. And so you, you, know, you can have your, like if you want to, you know, sign up, you can have your bsky.social, you know, username, which is like, you know, your identity host on our server, but also you could use a domain name and have your identity be something tied to a domain you already own, like, you know, jgraber.com or something. And then behind the scenes, you could just change the service provider, like the, the server that's hosting your data, and um, you'd get, like, people clicking through links and stuff would get redirected to this new location, and so you could shift over. And the way we've tried to design every piece of the infrastructure, and there's, you know, a few pieces technically behind the scenes that go to composing, go into composing this experience, is that anyone can run one of these in parallel. It's all open source software, it's all designed to interoperate, and so if you're like, I don't like any of the choices the Blue Sky company has made, a new entrant could come along, run all of the software in parallel, and have it be interoperable with this universe, and so users could shift between them. And so, the, yeah, and so the user experience of how that should work is, you know, you'd be like, migrate my account over to this service, you like configure the new service, the new endpoints, um, and you, you can do this depending on whether you're just migrating a user account or you're like running a server and you wanna like shift over to like a new backend. So a lot of times when you hear somebody talk about software development like this, you're like, oh, it's Mastodon. Like, there's going to be a bunch of people throwing a lot of detail at me that I'm not that interested in. But, but Blue Sky also has like had a cultural moment in the last year. We are today having this conversation shortly before Blue Sky's true public debut. So for the last year or so, you've been in what you've called a closed beta, where there are more than three million people on Blue Sky, but each one of them had to be invited. You had to get this prized invite code to join the party, uh, and soon anybody will be able to sign up. And I remember as a, as a relatively early Blue Sky adopter that there was this buzz in the early days of the service. Fast Company said in April of last year that it felt like Blue Sky had, quote, captured lightning in a bottle. And they asked, could it last? And so I guess a year later, reflect back on that for us. Has it lasted? What's changed? What's different now? Yeah, I mean, um, part of the reason we've stayed invite only so long is to give ourselves the opportunity to really get this right. We were building out both the protocol and an app on the protocol and wanting to make sure that, you know, 
as we open up and federate and make all these changes that users have a smooth experience. Like the whole philosophy has been that this needs to have good UX, be a good experience. People aren't just in it for you know, the decentralization or the abstract ideas, they're in it for you know, having fun and having you know, a good time here. And a lot of the early culture we, we did see was you know, a lot of memes, um, sort of like all sorts of uh, sort of early Twitter sort of culture. Um, and we had a really high ratio of uh, posters to lurkers, like a lot of social platforms, there's a very small percentage of people who post, a very large percentage of people who lurk. This was, from the beginning, it's been a very active posting culture. It continues to be, um, although in the beginning it was like extremely high, like I don't know, 90, 95% of the users were all posting, hmm. which is totally the inverse of how- That's such a reversal of how yeah. it actually works on social media. So that was just a, like a curious artifact of how this emerged and how the early communities formed. Um, so I, I still think we, you know, we have a lot of that and um, we have just a, a lot of like playful content and stuff and there is a sense of general experimentation I think around what's possible here. And um, stuff like the custom feeds which are now integrated into the app give a real sense of like, okay, how do we build community around, you know, hashtags aren't in there but we have these custom feeds which can use hashtags. And so there's a lot of experimentation with like new ways to do this, new ways to form community. Some of the feeds are super niche, like there's a moss feed that just shows pictures of moss and um, you know, fungi friends feeds that shows pictures of mushrooms and then like communities form around these and this becomes a new way to sort of like um, form subgroups of interest in a public conversation space that's like large and sprawling like Twitter. I mean, and, and you're, your user base, and I, I proudly consider myself one of them, are, are total weirdos, right? Like, I'll never, I'll never forget the insurrection in the early days of Blue Sky when you, you introduced your app and you're like, hello, these things on Blue Sky are called posts, and your users were like, ah, uh -uh, Jay, they're called skeets. And if you don't get the joke there, uh, good. But uh, if you were like, no, 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 please call them posts, and the community was like, no, forget it, they're skeets. Um, so I, I noticed that here on stage you are fastidiously calling them posts, but uh, if your users roast you for that on your head, be it. Um, but you know, the, the core of a lot of what you've been building over the last year has been moderation, and it's hard to talk about the development of a social platform without talking about moderation. Tarleton Gillespie has, has said that really when you're talking about a platform, what they fundamentally are selling to their users is not the, the buttons and the features and the interface elements, it's an approach to community and content management. What is Blue Sky's role when it comes to moderation? Yeah, so moderation is core to the social experience because it sets the norms of a digital space and as long as we're running a service and you know that service is like an app infrastructure, we'll be engaged in moderation because everyone who runs you know, a service in the network has to set the parameters for you know, how they're going to run that. Um, on the other hand, our broader vision here is composable moderation. And so that's essentially saying that you know, on the services we run, like the app, things like that, we set a baseline for moderation, but we want to build an ecosystem where uh, anyone can participate and third party is really first party. And so you kind of see this in the feeds right now where for curation, which is kind of the other side of moderation, it's how information gets put in front of you, um, we provide you with sensible defaults, like you have a following um, chronological feed when you sign up and you get an algorithmic feed that we built, Discover. Um, but on the other hand, there's all these other feeds out there and some of them are becoming really good and becoming first in class feeds. Like the For You feed is one that's actually built by a funded company that just got into Y Combinator. And um, this is something that you know, we are probably going to start, we're suggesting it in onboarding. So users start to like use these third party feeds as part of their first in class experience in the app. So with moderation, there's this idea, um, I know in some academic circles, 
of talking around um, moderation middleware, where essentially you get um, third parties uh, or anyone can sort of start contributing to what, you know, content, you know, labeling stuff. Um, what we've been calling this is third-party labelers, and these are going to get integrated in much the same way as composable feeds. And so you have a whole marketplace of them. Um, it can get integrated as a first-in-class experience, and then people outside the company, beyond us, can contribute to how moderation works, and then those pieces can stack together. Um, different services, different apps can you know, import them, maybe uh, put them into onboarding, like you know, just give them a first-in-class treatment. And you don't have to necessarily you know, run a whole server or like, run a whole backend infrastructure to participate in being a moderation service. You can just do what you're specialized in as an individual, as a community member who wants to like, contribute to protecting their community, or as like, um, an organization that's already in the business of fact-checking and wants to like, you know, label stuff out there. That's all something that can just be integrated directly into the app. So let's break this apart a little bit, because there's a lot of pieces to what you just said that I think are important to understand. So there's certainly the, the components of the app itself, your ability to control what you're seeing, this middleware dimension, and then an ecosystem of people who are contributing to moderation. We'll come back to this question of how we make it sustainable, but you know, Mike, I wanna, I wanna bring you in on this question of composable moderation, because we're actually hearing flavors of this a lot lately. Mm -hmm. um, when Threads came out and Meta folks went on a, a press tour, we heard Nick Clegg tell the Washington Post something like, you know, we hope over time we'll hear less about Facebook's top-down decisions and more about the controls we are, we are giving you. And, uh, and I don't know, I guess what that means in practice is that I can go on Instagram and you know, turn off fact checks and boost flat earth conspiracies in my Instagram feed. Um, and so is that what this is? Like, Is composable moderation just giving people the ability to opt in to seeing all of the vile, horrible stuff that trust and safety professionals like me have been trying to protect you from? Like, Is, is that what we're building here? Uh, I hope not. I mean, that would, that would be a, a mistaken view of it. I think that, that like, there were definitely people who who like read my original paper and thought that that was what it was suggesting, and that was on on me for not explaining things <laughs> clearly. I think you know what Jay's been talking about and what what Jay's been building and 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 her team has been building shows how much more advanced and how much more interesting this actually gets. Um, you know the um, the custom feeds and the the sort of algorithmic choice aspect of Blue Sky as like a first pass is one of the most interesting things I've seen on social in, in a long time, where every other social network that you go to right now, you, you get, you know, right now it's like you have the choice of like the for you feed or the, the chronological feed or, or whatever. Um, and that's basically what you're stuck with. Uh, whereas, you know, with the, the algorithmic choice aspect of, of Blue Sky, you're seeing all of these really, really interesting experiments, and you get to, to choose. And that's just at a very, very first pass. And again, that's on the curation side rather than the, the moderation side. But you begin to think about how that can apply to, to moderation as well, where you get just different experiments and different ideas. And like, so some people freak out about that, like saying, oh, you're just offloading all of the work. We're saying like, get rid of all the Yoels of the world and, and hand it off to the, the, the users to have to deal with this themselves. And that's not at all what, what I'm suggesting, but the, the idea that you have third-party services, whether it's middleware providers or however you want to put it, who can come in and help and give different approaches to it, you know, you have to, 
I mean, some of this is on faith, I'll admit, that like you begin to get different options that will become very valuable and will begin to standardize in terms of what it is that people want and if people can go in and, and use different, uh, choose which options they're most comfortable with and then adjust them as, as they see necessary to create the, the sort of world that they want to live in. That's not saying like, your only options are like give me all the awful stuff or like you know have things, but you can begin to to customize it in a much more interesting way. And then I think because you have third parties who are able to do it and independent whoever uh, people who are able to go in and do stuff, you get the experimentation as well. One of the issues that we have right now is that you know when you just have what Twitter X gives you, what Meta gives you. Um, and, and maybe just a few options of like checkboxes. That's not really the algorithmic choice. That's not really the, the composable moderation. That's not getting you to the level of like really um, allowing different entities to try different things and to experiment and to see what, what works best. And we're seeing that experimentation in the very early stages on Blue Sky um, that I think is, is going to be really, really exciting. I think there's um, one other element to this that, that that is important to address, um, and I don't know if I'm jumping on your next question a little bit too, but like the, the um, there's a simple fact of the matter that like bad, there are people who are not great out there. Um, Wait, really? <laughs> and, and they're not just gonna go away, uh, and they may cause trouble, right? And so there are significant questions about like in this world, like there are still, there's still bad people, there's still bad content, there's still problematic content. And not all of that can be dealt with by like individual moderation, right? You can't just say, uh, well, I don't wanna see the bad stuff and therefore all the, all the harm goes away, right? Um, but I think that when you get into this world where you have the composable moderation and, and the choice, you actually can begin to approach things in a much more interesting way where moderation is not just this is what I want to see, this is what I don't want to see, but you can begin to implement other services as well. You know, and I, I think to an, another, what had been a very interesting service on Twitter, wh which was Block Party, um, and if people are not familiar with Block Party, it was sort of this add-on for Twitter that um, allowed you to, it, it did some automation in terms of like blocking content and, and taking, con you know, and keeping content out of your feed if they thought that it was problematic. But I thought the more interesting aspect of Block Party was the, um, I, forget, I forget exactly what they called it, but where, uh, you know, all that content that you didn't see would go into, into a folder. You could go into the folder within Block Party and see it, but also you could, allow somebody else to see it. So if there was, if you were being, if there was like a brigade against you and you were being harassed and you could, you know, use Block Party to sort of keep that out of your feed, but there are real concerns if people are like organizing against you, you know, you might need to know something about that, but you might not be able to handle that directly and you don't want to do it, but through Block Party you could give access to a trusted friend, colleague, uh, relative whatever, and say like, can you look at this feed and tell me is there anything that I need to know or do anything with it? That was a really, really interesting tool, but you could take that to new and, and better levels with something like, like the at protocol and, and the composable moderation and the, the algorithmic choice, where you could build in other things too and like, not to get like too science fiction-y, futuristic stuff, but like, 
as we're seeing like all of these new AI tools come about, like you could imagine a world in which you're saying like, have an AI monitor this feed, don't show me the stuff that is going to drive me crazy, but if there is something that I need to be aware of or that someone needs to be aware of, alert so-and-so to the fact that people are organizing, they're going to show up at my house or they're going to you know, do something harmful or they're going to create other things. It begins to open up this world to do a lot more interesting things that doesn't rely just on like you at a company deciding like, oh, we need to protect these people, but that you can build services that are much more protective overall. And that's because it's a protocol, because it's open, because anyone can build on it, I think it opens up a, a lot of really interesting opportunities to do the, the whole project of like making social media safer, better, uh, just work better overall. But there have to be limits here, right? Like sure. there, you know, I've, I've spoken sometimes about the difference between perspectively harmful content, something that is harmful to you when you see it, and globally harmful content. That would be something like somebody posting my address on the internet or posting child sexual abuse media. Like that stuff is bad even if nobody sees it. It is dangerous and it causes harm to individuals and to society by virtue of existing. And it seems like composable moderation and, and this whole concept starts to run into some edges. And what I, what I hear from you, Mike, is that what we're opening up is a space of greater possibility and potential where we can try different things and see what works and some of it's gonna still be this centralized moderation, some of it will be user choice. But it seems like we, do, we haven't quite gotten away from this thing that true decentralization purists insist on, which is, we don't want any one central authority making these choices. I don't see how we can avoid that. Well, it, I mean, like, I mean, first of all, everything has trade-offs in some sense or another, right? And so there's always going to be a question, and it's like, right now, you know, if you look at any other sort of decentralized system where, um, where you, you have, there's basically, there's always some sort of roadblock somewhere, there's some sort of gatekeeper somewhere in the process, and uh, when, there is, when there are bad things happening, it is amazing how quickly you can discover where that, that gatekeeper roadblock is. Sometimes that's good, sometimes it's very bad, but there's always some point at which things happen. And so I think that, you know, again, to, to state one of the obvious things, which is like, you're never going to solve every problem. Um, so I'm not saying that this, that a decentralized system is perfect, but it does allow for much more interesting approaches to these problems, and that includes the, the global harm problems. I mean, we have other, you know, you think of, uh, you know, there are tools out there for CSAM right now that are, that are being used and, you know, where you have, you know, different companies that are providing these different tools, those can work in a decentralized system as well. Then you could argue that those tools themselves are centralized and there have always been concerns about, you know, photo DNA, for example, which like has been a, a great tool in, in many ways, but also there are concerns about it. Or like the, the global terrorism database where there's, you know, concerns about what gets in there and what is the, the, the process. But you do have those things that sort of spring up to try and deal with these things. And I think that in a decentralized world, those things can still exist. And in fact, you can do them in, in, in better, more useful ways. So I'm not saying that it gets rid of these problems, but I, I feel like there are ways to deal with them and pot potentially 
you know, experiment more to see if there are better, more effective ways of dealing with those kinds of global harms. And, and again, like things like someone posting my address, right? That's the type of thing that you could set up, uh, you know, a tool that basically alerts, okay, if, if this is happening, I need to know about it or somebody who will help me needs to know about it. And you can set up rules that are much better than a centralized system where you're relying on the company itself to protect you. But there, there might be other ways to deal with it that's, that's even more effective. And so, like, it's always a, a series of trade-offs and, and struggles. And, and again, like, this is not like, oh, hey, we've solved everything. We've solved bad people, right? Um, but, like, it, it allows for, for much more interesting experimentation that I think ends up dealing with these problems a lot better. Yeah, I, can, I can also jump in here and offer some of the ways we've been thinking about it, which is, you know, we've been trying to follow open web principles with the construction of the app protocol. So, you know, the analogy I make is like email, RSS, like HTTP, these like protocols that the first iteration of the web is built on. Like there are service providers in this ecosystem, right? Like we, Gmail is a very well-known email provider and Gmail does a lot to filter out spam and most email providers do because something like 80% of email sent in the world using SMTP is spam. Um, and so you don't see that because your service providers um, end up you know, filtering a lot of that out and that's kind of essentially a form of like moderation of email, a very simple protocol. Um, so service providers in this you know, open web sort of ecosystem still um, are trying to offer a good service and that includes um, you know, moderating, that includes, like moderation is a part of a service. And so um, the important key thing you get here with uh, building on an open protocol though is pluralism and the ability for new entrants to come in. And so you know, if we are you know, moderating our service and it's, we're doing a great job, then we probably keep a lot of our users. Um, if like, we set the baseline like, too low or too high when we're providing this baseline of service, then a new entrant can come in and do it differently than us. And that's like, the key thing that gives you the checks and balances on this. And when users have the right to leave, then it's not like they're rebuilding their social identity. When they move to another, they can just switch based on the quality of the service that's being offered. And, and just really quick, just to follow up on that, I mean, it, it is exactly what we've seen in, in the spam and the email context, right? I mean, early on, you know, people were just, you know, I mean, there wasn't that much spam, but as it started to grow, like service providers popped up and there were different ones and they did different approaches and some worked better than others and people began to sort of figure out which, which approaches to fighting spam worked better and then, you know, people did sort of begin to, to coalesce around the ones that actually worked. And so, you know, hopefully we get that same sort of thing within, within the social context. So I buy this, like I, I am deeply sympathetic to this argument and I think it, it does indeed help us solve one of the core challenges of trust and safety which is who watches the watchers? And here you're basically saying one, have more watchers and then two, uh, we're going to have more robust governance because this stuff is happening in, in an open way. Um, but then, you know, the third question is who funds the watchers? Um, you know, over the last year, I've been working on a research project looking at the trust and safety capabilities of federated and decentralized platforms. And again and again and again, in every discussion that we have, what we hear is, we know what we want to do, but nobody will pay us to do it. The funding model of this work is foundationally unsustainable. And of course, we, we all know that moderation is hard work. It is expensive to do at scale. Meta employs tens of thousands of moderators. I think the number is like 80,000 now and climbing. Uh, and it's also you know, emotionally challenging, traumatizing work that, that can have incredibly destructive consequences on the lives of the people who are doing that. And so 
Jay, I, I have to ask, you know, some of, some of your critics, by which I mean people on Blue Sky posting mean stuff, um, have said that, you know, the, the community approach, this like distributing responsibility thing, seems a little bit like Blue Sky just kind of washing its hands of the problem. And I don't think that's your intent, but, you know, how do you make this sustainable from a resourcing standpoint? Yeah, like, like I said, we're a service provider. Um, building an app is offering a service to people and trying to set a baseline for a default experience in the app. And this does cost money. And um, our goal is to also you know, make money as a company and be financially sustainable. But the traditional way that this works is you know, social companies um, create a moat around their users because they don't let them leave because you can't take any of your data or relationships with you. Um, and then they aggressively data mine and inshitify and you know, do all this stuff because users can't really get away at a certain point. Um, and then they just internalize all the costs of moderation and uh, you know, with all, everything that comes from downstream of that. Um, and so basically, like we are you know, by setting out to build this as an open protocol and giving people the right to leave, we are setting ourselves up to not go down this exact same path. Um, but you know, we still are trying to build a business and create financial sustainability. And the third parties who contribute to this ecosystem, who make it better, the custom feeds, the sort of um, moderation service providers, like these are marketplaces. And so if we at some point are like starting to you know, monetize, we'll be passing on some of that to the, uh, the services that have made this ecosystem work. Um, but on the other hand, this is also all open source social. Like we're building this in some ways to just function as a public commons. It's in between you know, private and public good. Like there's, um, the code is all open source. Uh, there's, this is built in a very open way. And this means that it can also work a bit like open source software. Like contributors can come in from outside um, and help out because fundamentally people want a space to talk online and people want to help contribute to make it a good space. Um, and then there's you know, companies operating within that who are offering you know, hosting of your data, offering an app. Um, those companies can make money. And then this ecosystem as a whole can hopefully be stood up as something that is maintained by you know, communities, users, the companies who are also like, making a living within them, um, and you know, civil society and sort of the long tail of all sorts of orgs who are invested in having a good space for public conversation. Like, it's something that can evolve beyond the control of just one company, both in terms of you know, new entrants coming in and uh, more people participating to make it good. So basically, it's not saying that you know, we're you know, offloading any of this or anything. It's saying that we have a role as a provider in this ecosystem. And then if you want the space to work differently than the baselines we've provided, here's the code, here's the open interfaces, here's the open APIs. Go make of it what you will. This is trying to make you know, public conversation spaces a, a public good. So we have a, there, there's sort of an interesting past precedent in the open source space, and especially the open source social space, of what, uh, what it looks like when those, those bad people Mike was talking about take your open source code and do stuff with it. Uh, and I'm talking here about the adoption of Mastodon by Gab, the now notorious neo-Nazi and white supremacist social network. Um, and in sort of a, a famous story of the, the uh, sort of infamously argumentative Mastodon community coming together, they all kind of banded together and said, even though Gab wants to interoperate with the rest of Mastodon and use Mastodon's code, they were going to reject them and block them and ostracize them from the network, and it's this sort of story of triumph over, over Gab. Um, how does that work on Blue Sky? Let's say somebody takes all this code you've been publishing, uh, the app protocol, and they build a new social network. Uh, let's, let's call it Nazi Sky. Um, you know, wh what, do you, what do you do? Do you have recourse in that situation? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very similar to the other cases because, um, you know, this is one of the trade-offs of open source, which is it, there's a lot of benefits. Stuff is open, anyone can collaborate, anyone can contribute, anyone can use the code, anyone can enter the marketplace. That also means people who uh, values drastically diverge can your, from yours can use the code and grab it and run with it. Um, but the key aspect of social is interconnection. It's like who talks to who, who, like what are the norms of these social spaces that we create? And uh, essentially, like, I think that the norms will evolve through social consensus. Anyone who runs a service in this network gets to set the parameters of like who they're gonna interconnect with. And so, you know, we will set those parameters based on like our community values. Um, and Mastodon is, you know, made up of lots of yeah, people running servers, those are essentially service providers providing a service to their users, and they, get, they got to decide who they interconnected with. And so I think this is one of those elements where it's um, a pluralist ecosystem, there's lots of parties out there, and when they unanimously decide that something is you know, outside the Overton window of the norms of communication, then that becomes a sort of social consensus. So it's a form of digital governance where there's more than just one party deciding, but that still means there's digital governance. There's lots of parties deciding together, like what are our norms, who are we going to interconnect with, and then if you know, a whole parallel universe emerges, that's possible with open source software, but those communities don't necessarily talk if the norms are so drastically divergent. So, Mike, I wanna, I wanna go back to, to sort of this question of um, you know, who watches the watchers and what are the solutions here. Um, one of the other answers, largely coming from our friends in Europe, is the, the government watches the watchers. Um, and this brings to mind for me another one of these stories about where governance lives on the internet, which is Cloudflare, which you've been writing a lot about and have gotten some heat over over the years. Um, but for those who weren't following the story, Cloudflare is a security company that helps protect websites from distributed denial of service attacks. And over the years, uh, it has been discovered that they were providing their security services to let's call them the bad people that Mike keeps bringing up, uh, including neo-Nazi news site The Daily Stormer and a website dedicated to the victimization of trans folks called Kiwi Farms. Uh, and in both of those cases, notably after public outrage and pressure, Cloudflare made the decision to withdraw their security services from these websites, which effectively drove them off the mainstream internet and everybody cheered and was happy. Um, except for the CEO of Cloudflare, who then said, I actually hate that I have the power to wake up one day and effectively kick somebody off the internet. And in a thoughtful, well-reasoned blog post explaining this position, he says, you know, for the really tough stuff, the really important things like governing who gets access to Cloudflare, I really wish the government would just make that decision. Uh, and, and Mike, I'm sure reading that, your head exploded. Um, what do you think? Yeah, right, I mean, I, I certainly have concerns about, I mean, anyone just having the power to totally kick someone off the internet one way or the other, whether it's the government or whether or not it's, it's one company that you know, effectively has that, has that power. Um, I, you know, I do think that there, this is you know, one of the, the bigger challenges that, that we're still trying to sort through and, and you know, I've certainly been writing about it and, and encouraging other people to think about it and write about it and talk about it around kind of like the different layers on the internet and then where the governance has to lie for that. And, and you know, in, in my head and sort of where Cloudflare came out as well and where I think it was why I thought their, their statement on it, even if I didn't agree exactly where they came down on it, I thought it was very thoughtful and sort of carefully planned was that, you know, there are services that are sort of infrastructure layer and you know, there's this idea of like, 
you know, again, going back, and, and it's not all just like bad people, right? There's a whole bunch of, there's a big spectrum here. But if we're going to the most extreme and you have like just the really bad people, like do we ever think that like the really bad people should not be able to use the web at all or use the internet at all? Should we have like a tool to ban them from HTTP? Like that probably feels too extreme. Um, though, you know, there have been some court cases that have said people can't use the internet and then there's been pushback on that as well. Um, but then as you get, further up the stack or down the stack, depending on which direction you draw your stack, uh, you know, there, there are questions about like, you know, the at the service provider level, it's perfectly reasonable for, for different service providers to say, I am not going to do business with you, um, with, with, you know, certain limitations on that. Um, and then the, the question is, you know, where and how do we, do we deal with the different challenges within that stack, right? And so Cloudflare positioning itself very much as closer to the HTTP side of that, the, the, we are infrastructure providers, um, has a very, very high bar before they're going to step in. Um, and then that, that you know, raises a bunch of, of questions about that as well. I, the, the, the fact is, like, just the nature of this discussion is like, there, again, there aren't easy answers. Um, because whoever does have that power, is going, it's going to raise a lot of questions. And we, you know, it's easy to say, like, in the context of, like, the Nazis or, like, Kiwi Farms or whatever, it's like, no one should ever do business with those people. But then you get into cases where it, like, it gets a lot trickier, where there are situations where, like, payment providers and cutting off sex workers and saying, like, we will not, you know, process payments for, for sex workers, um, you know, and there are a, a number of examples like that where it's like, geez, that's not great that the payment providers can suddenly say, like, no, you can't, you can't do business anymore. Um, and so, again, it's one of these things that we just sort of, you know, are going to continually experiment and do different things, and where I do think that the move towards more decentralization allows for more interesting experimentation in these areas without, you know, without having to rely on, again, like people within a 25-mile radius around San Francisco, but that we can, we can experiment and figure out, like, how, are there better ways to limit the impact? You know, you can't, Unfortunately, you can't turn a Nazi into not a Nazi, but can we limit the impact of, of the Nazis and of the, of the terrible people? And having a system that isn't this complete paternalistic top-down, like, you're bad, you're off the internet, but rather, like, let's limit their impact, let's limit their ability to, to wreak havoc, um, I think leads to a better place in the long run. So I want to shift gears a little bit in our, in our last 10 minutes uh, and, and Jay, ask you about this incredibly monumental, daunting task of building an entirely new social network from scratch. Um, and, and at the risk of, again, being a gloomy person who dwells on the negative, I think it is safe to say that there have been some notable, um, let's call them learning opportunities for Blue Sky over the last year, especially around moderation. Um, in one case, your users discovered that you had not implemented a uh, list of bad words that were filtered out of usernames, and so uh, immediately folks started registering accounts with um, racial epithets and every other bad word that you could, you could imagine. Um, obviously, uh, one lesson from that is have a really big list of bad words that you don't let your users have in their usernames. Um, what have been some of the other big lessons from year one? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a miss. Um, I can talk a bit more about how that happened, where we're going. Um, basically, at the time, we were, that was last summer, we were a really small team, like, you know, less than 10 engineers. We all fit around a conference table. And we were actually in person um, at a team week when we saw that, you know, our moderation team, which is, was at the time, you know, resolving reports within 24 hours, like a lot of them a lot sooner, had caught that this, there was a slur in a username. And so uh, they took it down within the hour, and then we went into a conference room and fixed it that evening. And so we patched the code, which was also all open source. And so the community was looking on and like, you know, discussing like, you know, what are the word lists being used, like what's happening here, and um, basically learned that also it's important to communicate really clearly and transparently like as you're building this, because we're all building it in the open. And so everyone can see what's happening, but there's also a lot of confusion around like, like, you know, what's happening? How did this happen? Um, and so, yeah, we, we learned a lot about like communication, transparency, and um, being really proactive. And like I mentioned earlier, like one of the reasons we've stayed invite only so long is to give ourselves some space to get this right. And we've done a lot of work around moderation, trust and safety. We've grown both our engineering team a bit as well as our moderation team. And, um, you know, one of the things that we've done is put out a moderation report on what happened in 2023, like a lot of the reports we resolved, a lot of the tooling we've built, um, the investments we've made in this area. And um, probably it's fair to say that about like half of our technical product work has been related in some way to trust and safety because moderation is quite core to how this works. And in an open ecosystem, you're not, you know, leaning entirely on one entity making all the calls anymore. So you, we've been building in these interfaces for, you know, composable moderation and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, basically fundamentally this is open source social. And so we're learning how to build in the open, um, learning, you know, what kind of benefits and drawbacks there are to that. One of the things that we haven't open sourced yet, but will soon is actually our moderation software. We've built our own uh, software for, you know, resolving reports, doing appeals, like doing all this stuff. And it seems like, you know, every, you know, there's a lot of these lessons here that you know, every social app that comes along has, you know, learns them all over again. Um, a lot of this work happens and there's like, an, you know, an industry of professionals who've like moved between them and like know all this, but it's not really, it's not really treated as like public knowledge or like a public good. And like part of what we hope happens here is that like as we're building this all out in the open, as we, you know, the moderation labeling infrastructure, like all that, this stuff is, you know, it's all open and it opens us up to a lot of scrutiny, but also hopefully that this space evolves in such a way that, you know, new social apps coming along, building on AppProto don't have to repeat everything that we've done. Like there's a, you know, infrastructure being built out. There's like, you know, lessons to be learned here. Um, and, yeah, so one of the things that we, we've been doing is just um, documenting all this, putting it out in the open. Um, it will be out soon, the sort of like moderation software we've built. And um, what, just hoping that as we inevitably like make mistakes and grow as a small team, this doesn't necessarily define like how the protocol is because the protocol is fundamentally just trying to make social a public commons. And the app that we've built, we're trying to show what a good user experience looks like and we have opinions on that and we've tried to build it in a good way. But sometimes if we make mistakes, you know, that happens and we hope that the ecosystem learns and grows from it as well. I mean, let me, let me be clear, like, I don't think creating a new social media service from scratch is an easy task by any stretch, and, and the issues that you've run into are by no means unique to Blue Sky. You just, you know, have the misfortune of sitting next to me on stage, so I ask you about them. Um, but, you know, in, in the research we've been doing over the past year, we found that virtually every decentralized and federated social platform has less developed and less robust moderation capacities by every conceivable measure 
than their centralized counterparts. And if you go back to you know, what Tarleton has said about the centrality of moderation to constructing user experience in a way that sort of leaves us with either these entrenched incumbents who've spent 15 years building out their bad word lists or new entrants that almost inevitably are gonna you know, crack a couple of eggs and, and are gonna mess a couple of things up. Mike, uh, a few months ago, Derek Slater and Betsy Mazziello wrote a great piece on TechDirt talking about exactly this problem and how we break the cycle. What's the opportunity that we have? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, and sort of the point of, of what they wrote and their research um, was really about rising up and, and, and bring to the forefront this idea of more open source things, which I think gets to what Jay was just talking about and, and the work that they've done and, and doing stuff in public so that people can learn and that it's not just um, you know, the experts in, in the back rooms who have figured this out. And that's again where I think like this area of the decentralization and the experimentation opens up a lot of really interesting opportunities for people to learn. And while I agree that like in the, in the Fediverse Mastodon environment, like there are real challenges, which I know you've looked at deeply, there are also reports of like, you know, I just heard recently something, and, and maybe you'll tell me this is not true, but uh, from, from Tim Chambers, who does a lot of research on, on the Fediverse, saying that basically, you know, in the Fediverse, there are actually more moderators per user than at any of the, the large social media companies, which is an interesting stat. There are lots of caveats on that. Um, but you know, we're beginning to see these sort of interesting experiments about how these different, different things can work. And I'm actually gonna jump back for a second to the, the previous question, which I was realizing there was something I wanted to say in there that then ties into this, which is the, the question of sort of like, uh, whether or not the, the, the government should step in on, on these things, where, which you know, is happening in certain cases, certainly the, the EU and the DSA. Um, and you know, one of the things that I worry about with those kinds of approaches is that they are very much built in this world of like, there are five or six maybe centralized providers that we can heavily regulate and give them instructions and things that they need to do and we're going to hold them to, to account for that. And I worry that that is sort of entrenching that world in which we have these, these few centralized providers who are you know, accountable to the government in that sense, but it <coughs> takes away the opportunity for these sort of much more interesting open experiments and in fact, in many cases, could potentially foreclose them. When you have this world in which you have to have all of these steps in place and like, you know, if, if the, the sort of you know, government approach to this is that you can't make the mistakes in, open, in, in the open that, that, that Blue Sky maybe has made, I wouldn't say they're mistakes, learning, you know. Uh, learning opportunities. Learning opportunities. Um, you know, and and the, the just general experimentation to try different things. And, and we are very early in the overall world of social. It you know, feels like it's been around for, for a while, but you know, people are approaching things in very different ways and we're still figuring out what is the most effective and what works. That's why half the people in this room are studying these things and, and trying to, to explain them because we don't know what the, the, the correct answers are and more experimentation is, is more likely to get us there. And so, you know, having things be open source and having more opportunity to, to try out different things I think is, is a really big opportunity. So we've been going for almost an hour and we haven't talked about threads. And so, uh, you know, Jay, I, I really wanna give you the last word here. Um, 
it's hard not to be drawn to analogies like, you know, you being the, the David to, I guess, Adam Mosery's Goliath. Um, what does the future look like? Are you worried about threads? Yeah, I mean, a really interesting thing threads did is they ported over users from Instagram's like two billion user base because when you created a threads account, you could just log in with your Instagram account and then port over all of your friends, your entire social graph. And that's just meta moving users in between two properties that they own. But what we were trying to build with that protocol is actually that ability to you know, have a user move between different social apps and for new app developers and new social entrants being able to have users join like that, but having this not just be owned by one company, by any party can come in and do this. And so you know, the three million Blue Sky users, now if someone comes along and builds another social app, um, the idea is they can just move over and keep those social graph and those relationships and grow that way. Um, and so what we're really trying to build is something that I think is still fundamentally different from what they're doing, even though they've you know, made some gestures towards integrating with ActivityPub. Um, we looked at ActivityPub, which is what Mastodon is built on, early on, and one of the key things that we wanted to design the app protocol around was account portability, so that when you moved from one service to another or one server to another, you could keep your relationships, your data, and your username, and so people could still find you. Um, but you know, if threads goes ahead and integrates with ActivityPub, which you know, they haven't done yet, but if they do it, um, part of the structure of this is that users will still be on you know, a service, a server run by Meta, and they might have this window into a protocol ecosystem, but they won't be able to move as seamlessly. And so if, you know, say, Threads shuts down or something drastically changes again, um, then- Meta has never done that with any of their sites before, to be clear. <laughs> Yeah, then, then like, you know, users wouldn't be able to you know, seamlessly migrate unless they were on a protocol that had this account portability property. So um, that's one of the things that we think is super important about making sure that you're getting the properties you want out of decentralization, which is not just openness to innovation and resilience, but ability for users to migrate and kind of vote with their feet. That's what creates these checks and balances. Um, and also, you know, it's, it's interesting that uh, Porting over Instagram users potentially creates a larger user base for microblogging because you know Twitter was always smaller than some of these other social forms. Um, so it's interesting to see what the future holds. We're not sure either, but one thing that we know is sort of a conviction we've had from the beginning, which is a captain can always sink the ship. And um, if we want like a resilient democratic infrastructure for public conversations to take place on, if we consider this important, then we should give users the ability to port their identity and relationships, much like you can switch from AT&T to T-Mobile and keep your contact list. You don't have to like be a new identity. And that portability around something that's become really central to communication, like your phone number, is something that we think social is increasing, increasingly reaching that level of importance, um, particularly when you have so much like news, public conversation, like conversations critical to, to democracy on it. Um, it should probably be open source, governed in a more democratic way, and uh, should have the same checks and balances that we have elsewhere in this ecosystem. I can't think of a better note to leave it on. Mike, Jay, thank you both so much. Grab a shovel and dig up the cat. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get.